This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. I am jealous of the guys doing the run this morning. I was meant to be doing it as well until I got a calf injury back in July and that really upset my training routine, so I couldn't do it, unfortunately. But anyone else kind of wishing they were out running this morning? <laughs> everyone. If you're at home, everyone's shaking their head. <laughs> now, I don't like you, but this week I was watching the Prime Minister and the Chief Medical Officer last Monday briefly in a headline discussing the fact that... Um, uh, there's a plan B for this autumn and winter, uh, you know, to restrict our freedoms again if um, things go south on the stats. And whilst that's completely understandable, and it was only a warning, and they may have been laying it on thick in order to get people to go and get their jab, um, I don't know about you, but I was a bit like, oh! I thought the vaccinations were going to bring all of this to an end. I thought that we were going to be able to get back to doing life as normal. And uh, just felt uh, just a bit of frustration. I don't know about you. It, the, re- the reason is, is because I find it hard to be optimistic about the future, to have vision for the future, if everything is completely uncertain. Do you, do you find like that? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but how many of you have, you know, got your holidays booked for next year yet? None of you, no. How many of you are kind of thinking to yourselves, you know, actually, um, I know what we're going to do for Christmas. Um, I've got ideas about uh, perhaps a party I'm going to throw. Or perhaps you're... Is anyone thinking about moving house? Like, yay, this is a great time of the season to move house. No, it's not, is it? (laughs) The reality is, is that things are uncertain and it's difficult to kind of plan for the future. Maybe you're also kind of like me or you're kind of wondering to yourself, well... What does the future hold for my kids? Uh, what does it look like? The reality is, is that the last 18 months have thrown everything up in the air and it's very uncertain. So it's quite hard, I think, to kind of have momentum in our lives uh, when we don't know what's going to happen. Now, um, I don't know about you, uh, uh, when I was a kid and a teenager, um, you probably didn't do this, but I spent my time in the air cadets. And so um, at least once a week, we would do something called drill. Has anyone, anyone ever done drill? Yeah, one or two of you. So drill for those of you that are uninitiated is basically a way in which you move together as a, well, in my case, a squadron of cadets in the same direction at the same time in step with one another. So we walk along usually, you know, swinging our arms backwards and forwards. That's called TikToking. Got that wrong. Um, but what I would do long before TikTok ever came along. But one of the things that used to happen was we would march through cities like Manchester and London in big parades. And every so often in a big parade, the problem is, is that it's a bit like on the motorway with the traffic where it kind of expands and compresses and everyone has to slow down and then speed up again. It's a bit like that with marching when you're in you know, a sort of parade of, say, 400 cadets. And uh, so there, sometimes during that parade, you will find yourself having to mark time, which is where you, you keep your arm by the side and you have to just mark time like this. Now, believe me, marking time like this is a lot more tiring than marching forwards with your arms because you have to hold your body in a fixed position, whereas when you're swinging your arms, you have forward momentum and you keep going. Marking time is much more tiring than marching. Now, for some of us, the pandemic has been like marking time. It's been tiring. You've had to keep going even though you're not moving forwards. You have to maintain a sense of optimism and vision even though everything in front of you is uncertain. And actually you can end up living life with a sense of frustration and burnout actually is very, very tiring. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I've missed the most is a sense of hope 
and anticipation for the future. I tend to live with a sense of vision in front of me. I love the big picture, give me the big picture rather than the small details. And many of you, if you work with me, will know that. Um, but the reality is, is that we're kind of fed up with the pandemic, aren't we? Is anyone, no, no, this pandemic has been great. Let's just keep it going. <laughs> is anyone like that? Anyone at home like that? No, I don't think so. We're all a bit tired of it. We're all fed up. Teachers, you're probably fed up of the challenge of keeping yourself and the kids safe whilst doing an already demanding job, am I right? Healthcare professionals, you're fed up of overtime requests and having to wear layers of PPE all my life. I'm a physiotherapist part-time as well. You have to cover up with face masks and my glasses get steamed up and wearing scrubs, I've washed my hands every five minutes. It's just a hassle. Students, are you fed up of doing lectures on Zoom? I know some of you are back in person, but are you fed up of not being able to party and socialise as you want to? If you work in an office, are you fed up of, uh, well, working from home, frankly, working on your dining room table, sitting on your dining room chair? How your shoulders ache, am I right? I see so many people in my clinic now that come in who are sat on their dining room table in chairs like this, and their shoulders are up here because they have to put their hands on the keyboard, and it's just a nightmare. Everyone's fed up with it. If you were planning to travel overseas, are you fed up with the uncertainty? How many of you perhaps would have normally travelled overseas this year but haven't bothered because of the, the uncertainty that relates to the testing? What if you get a positive test whilst you're in a foreign country? How do you deal with that? Where do you get the money to live there for a further 10 days? And what about all the uncertainty around whether the tests come back positive or negative? Just a nightmare. We're all sick of it. and fed up of it. One of our staff team this week, you can work out who it was that said this, said that we need to put some bounce back into our life. Any, any suggestions? <laughs> Emma, you were there, you cheat. <laughs> it was Emma. <laughs> yeah. Emma is right. We need some bounce back in our lives. We need energy. We need vision. We need some forward momentum. We need to stop marking time. We need to move forwards. Um, but, you know, um, the reality is, is that things are still uncertain. Like, there is still some uncertainty, as we found out this week from um, the Prime Minister. But... How can, we, how can we have hope? How can we have some sense of vision at this particular time? What's the best plan to do it? Is it, is it to make some plans and just hope that everything goes well? Well, I mean, things are easing. So in all likelihood, the probability of things going well, if you make plans, is, is increasing, no doubt about that. Perhaps, um, though, you, you, you might need deep pockets of money just in case uh, things aren't working out and you have to pay your way out of it. Um, what about just accepting that your plans may have to change and you just put up with it? You're still in that same place of uncertainty. I think there's a better answer to that if you were to want to put your hope in God. I think there's a better answer to that. We can live with vision, we can live with hope even when there is uncertainty in our lives. And if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 5, we're going to look at that this morning. If you've got the app on your phone, uh, pull it up. If you've got your Bible, hard copy, pull it up. Romans 5, verses 1 to 5. Now, here we go. So, this, this passage starts with therefore, uh, which connects it fully to the passage beforehand, so we'll have a look at that in a second, but let's just read it. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, 
but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, or rather does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, whenever we read something in the Bible, um, we need to ask ourselves, what did that mean when it was originally written? Now, scholars call that hermeneutics. The rest of us call that common sense. Am I right? Yeah? Because this is a document that was written a long time ago. So, scholars are pretty certain that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. And one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter to the Romans was to settle an argument, a conflict, between the Jewish community in Rome. Now, we need to remember that back then, there was no such thing as Christianity. Now, some of you will be surprised to hear that, but there was no such thing as Christianity. It was a Jewish story. Jesus was a Jew. He was a Jewish rabbi. Paul was a Jew of the highest order. He was the, one of the highest trained Jewish Pharisees in the land. Okay, this is a Jewish story. And uh, the Jesus who uh, Christians worship now, well, I, I doubt you would have recognized him. Not what, just what he looked like, but how he behaved. The reality is, is that what we look at when we look at the, uh, the, the words in the New Testament is a Jewish story, and it's a wonderful story. Now, like Paul, there were many Jews who had believed that Jesus was their Jewish Messiah. And so they traveled around the known Roman Empire communicating that Jesus was the Messiah, communicating it to the Jews. The difference with Paul was, was that Paul wasn't just communicating to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, he was also communicating to the Gentiles, that is, those who were not Jews. And that brought him into a lot of conflict with other Jews. What we are really seeing in Paul's letters is Paul's response to the sectarian battle that was going on amongst the Jews at that time, between those who believed that Jesus was the Messiah and those that believed he wasn't. So Paul writes this letter to this divided Jewish community in Rome in order to try and reconcile them. And in the first four chapters of Rome, Romans, Paul says that the gospel of Jesus does two things. One, it reconciles humanity to God, and two, it creates the conditions for human beings to be reconciled with each other. That's Paul's thrust in the first four chapters. And he says this is what will resolve the conflict between the Jews in Rome. But how does that happen? How does Jesus reconcile humanity to God? Are we reconciled to God by being morally righteous, Paul says? No. Are we reconciled to God by believing the right things? No. Are we reconciled to God by putting our faith in Jesus? No. Hang on a minute, some of you are going, what have you just said? You're worried that I'm going to be heretical? Well, let's just have a look at that. Surely we need to put our faith in Jesus to be reconciled with God, right? Isn't that what the evangelists have been telling us all of our lives? Things like, if you want to be a Christian, then say this prayer of faith. How many of us have had that told us? Me? Things like, you need to start going to church. You need to repent of your sins. 
when I uh, was at university for the first time, I did two degrees. I was, at geography, I did, I was a geography uh, undergraduate at Plymouth. And when I went to university in 1991, I met some guys from the Christian Union who told me that Jesus had died on the cross for me. Now, I kind of already knew that because I'd had some association with the Methodist Church in our village because my parents dragged me along there. But if I wanted to benefit from it, then I had to do something in response. I had to say a prayer of repentance. I had to go to church or the Christian Union, hold the correct beliefs. And that was a really big one. That was really big. I had to believe the cer- certain things. I had to be, believe that they were true and I had to accept that they were true. Because if there was this, always this logical threat or implicit within what they said that if I didn't do those things, that I wouldn't be reconciled with God, that I might, you might recognize this, backslide. Yeah? You might know this from your own experience of life. Or you might fall away. <laughs> and I have to say, Christians have long had this kind of anxiety about backsliding or falling away from God because they did something wrong. And if you ever feel like that, you are not alone. There's a lot of people who would feel like that. It's a common angst amongst Christians. People that aren't Christians are kind of like rolling their eyes going, what on earth? Now, here's the thing. Um, One of the reasons um, that there is confusion about this is with regards to a key verse in Romans 3. I'm just going to run this over with you. Romans 3, 21, 22. It says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, on the face of it, that verse appears to say that being reconciled to God is dependent on our measure of faith and belief in Jesus Christ. Now, if, that, if you read it like that, that might raise a few questions for you. Questions like, how much faith do I need to have in Jesus? And those of you that know your Bibles well might say things like, well, just, just the size of a mustard seed, because that was a parable that Jesus told. But how much faith and belief do I do need to have in Jesus? What happens if I lose some or all of my faith and belief in Jesus? What happens then? Am I just out with God? Have I backslidden? Have I fallen away? Am I descending, as some believe, into the pit of hell? Is that what's going to happen to me when I die? These are not uncommon questions. And that group that Chris Simmons is starting, what did you call it? Deep Chat. Chat. If you've got questions like that, go to that group. Because Chris is going to just unpack some of that and give you the opportunity to talk openly about it. Because one of the problems is is that Christians wrestle with these questions without ever talking about them. Am I right? Some of you are nodding around the room. You don't know uh, whether you should talk to other people about it because you're a bit embarrassed about it. Um, and you're worried that other people might judge you for it, right? Last week, I said that as we build back from this pandemic, uh, we want Seven to be a church that promotes questioning and debate, all right? We want you to feel like you can disagree with one another, chat to one another about it, be open with one another about it, rather than feel like you can't voice your angst, your concerns, your doubts. And feedback from this week, from feedback from this week, having... Many people haven't heard that talk confirmed to me that that's absolutely right. There are many people in our midst who actually do have questions that they're too embarrassed, ashamed, or afraid to share with other people, particularly other Christians, for fear of what those Christians might think about them. So I want to just say that Claire and I and the staff team are committed to building a church here where we can promote questioning and debate for a number of reasons. And I just want to describe three of those reasons to you. There are probably others. Uh, top of that list is our mental health. Your mental health, my mental health, 
okay? We are not a cult where we use fear to control what people believe. In the UK and the US, the stats show that loads of people, particularly younger adults, are leaving churches because they've decided that they don't just want to be told what to believe. They're intelligent, they want to make up their mind. Thank you very much. And fair enough, I wouldn't want to be part of a church where I had to unquestionably accept just everything that I was told. And similarly today, I don't expect you and you just to accept what I'm saying. You need to question it. You need to ask yourself, what does that mean? How does that work for me? Talk about it with your friends. Talk about it with your family. The second reason um, that I want to promote questioning and debate is that life is not clear and simple. Life is complicated, or at least my life is. Is anyone else's life complicated? Yeah. Simplistic beliefs don't always answer the questions that complex life throws up at you, right? It doesn't always fit, and it doesn't help us navigate the complexities of life. Third reason, and this is really significant, and some of us will be surprised to hear this, but the culture of Jesus, the culture of Judaism, was of discussion, debate, and argument. And I'm going to show you that in the next few weeks in the scriptures. But what happened was is that in order to grow in your faith and understanding, you would debate, you would discuss, you wouldn't just accept things at face value. This was the culture that Jesus and Paul actively encouraged. And here's the thing. When you see the arguments that Jesus got into with the other Jews, when you see the arguments that Paul gets into with the other Jews, what we're seeing here is a rich tradition of debate and discussion. It wasn't like he was an outlier. This was the culture of the Jews, and it still is. So my question is, why on earth do we churches, why on earth do we kind of do the opposite? Why do we actively discourage debate and discussion? Um, the reality is, and I want to reference this book by Tom Holland too, it's called Dominion, and it's probably, well, I'd say it's one of the best books uh, that I've read in a long time. It's, if, it, the Times uh, review of the year said, if great books encourage you to look at the world in an entirely new way, then Dominion is a very great book indeed. I really recommend that book to you because what, what you're going to discover there is, is the context in which Christianity has shaped our present world. The reality is that in the last 2,000 years, the church has actively discouraged questioning and debate. Okay? Actively discouraged. And some of you will be familiar with things like the Spanish Inquisition. Um, that, that's, that's not just a kind of... Um, that's just not something we should pass off in passing. That's where the church sought to control people with violence... Um, and, and make them believe certain things. And if they didn't believe them, they would be physically assaulted. Okay? There are ways in which the church has sought to control what people believe. And I recommend that book to you to just understand more about the way that has happened. Here's the thing. What do you do when you have questions about faith and belief, but are unable to talk about it for fear of being thought of as a heretic? What do you do? What does any sane person do they leave the church they leave the church because this is not a place where I can be open about my doubts, about my worries about my anxieties and, and I want to say I am sorry to you for if we have created a church where you don't feel you can be open about your doubts, your fears, your insecurities your anxieties about God and about your relationship with God if we've created a church where you can't do that it's our fault and we're sorry about that but we're going to change that. We're not going to allow that to happen anymore. We want to be a church where you can be open and honest about those things. We want to change that culture. We want to ask more questions than we answer. 
And you'll notice that in the way we speak. Let's wrestle with the difficult questions. Let's simply not separate because we decided we can't agree on a theological point. So back to this question, how do we become reconciled to God? Well, is Paul saying here that it is dependent on how much faith we have in Jesus and how much we believe in Jesus? Well, if you've got a Bible like mine, you will see a footnote reference to the word in at the bottom of the page. Have you got a Bible like that? If you've got a Bible like mine, you need glasses to read it because it's so printed so small. Anyway, um, Romans 3, 22, and it actually says here in the footnote that it, this verse can be translated from the Greek that this righteousness is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ or your faithfulness in Jesus Christ? Which one is it? Is it in or of? Those two prepositions have huge consequences because if it's in, then the onus is on you and me. If it's of, then the onus is on Jesus. Which one is it? Now, four or five hundred years ago, 500 years ago actually, Martin Luther and, uh, and people who followed him, John Calvin and other Protestant Reformed theologians, since 1517 people, that's a long time ago, have chosen to translate the Greek phrase pistis Christu in Romans 3.22 and, I might add, in Galatians 2.16, Galatians 3.22, Ephesians 3.12 and Philemon 3.9. Could you keep up? <laughs> They've chosen to describe that as or translate that as faith in Christ rather than faith of Christ. Now on the other hand, until Martin Luther inspired the Protestant Reformation, which had, he did for many good reasons, but I would you know, read Tom Holland's Dominion or any other history book about the Reformation and you'll see it was a real mixed bag. But until that point, all the other translations of the New Testament translated Romans 3.22 as the faith of Christ, not the faith in Christ. So for example, the 4th century Latin translation of the Bible known as the Vulgate, which... Um, uh, the early church father, Jerome, translated. Um, he translated Romans 3.22 as the faith of Christ. William Tyndale, who himself um, was a reformer, um, he, in his 16th century English translation, translated Romans 3.22 as the faith of Christ Jesus, even though he was sympathetic to Luther's cause. Even the King James Bible, which was written 100 years after Luther, translates Romans 3.22 as the faith of Jesus Christ. And it's also worth noting that apart from the Reformed Church streams that have their roots in Luther and Calvin, the whole of the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church for 2,000 years have held to the understanding that we are saved by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to God rather than our faithfulness to Christ. N.T. Wright, who is one of the world's leading New Testament scholars and um, someone that you can... I mean, he's written so many books, you, you're going to find them everywhere... When he, he says it and puts it quite bluntly, when Paul speaks in Galatians and Romans of Pistus Christi, which is faithfulness in Christ, he normally intends to denote the faithfulness of the Messiah Jesus to the purposes of God rather than the, but the faith by which Jew and Gentile alike believe the gospel. Now, there are plenty of Reformed theologians that would disagree with Tom Wright. Okay? And that's, that's the thing about this. There's disagreement. Let's be open about it. There's disagreement about this. But... Here's the thing. What is the gospel of Jesus? Is it Romans 3.22, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, or this righteousness is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe? Which translation makes the most sense of the gospel being the unconditional 
love of God. Which translation makes the most sense? Now, I'm not going to answer that question for you. You can decide yourselves. All right? But let's return to that main question that I asked earlier. How do we get some bounce and energy and some forward movement, some momentum? How do we stop marking time and live in a place of hope rather than a place of disillusionment? Well, I think the answer is in Romans 5.5. And I've looked at the New Century Version here just because I think the, the words are more clear in this translation. And this hope will never disappoint us because God has poured out his love to fill our hearts. Child psychologists will tell us uh, that if we are loved unconditionally as children, then we will grow up to be emotionally healthy adults, particularly in those first two years when we are learning. Like when we're like little Isaac up here. Wasn't he cute? Fast asleep. I mean, that kid is going to be singing his heart his whole life, isn't he? Because that's all he knows, right? Because this, these first two years of a child's life are absolutely foundational. What you learn in those first two years of your life shapes the rest of your life. So if you're loved unconditionally as a child in those first two years, you're, you're going to grow up to your emotionally healthy person, apparently. <laughs> now, you may not know. To be, to be fair, that's probably not entirely true. <laughs> because a lot happens from the ages of two onwards. And I know it did in my life too. But, you know, you, you may not know what you believe about God. Um, and you may be deconstructing your faith in God and your identity as a Christian. And if you are, then I just want you to be really... Uh, honest about that and say we we just welcome that we say to you that is normal and healthy and part of what it means to be a human being and we want to encourage that um but what you do need to know and i'm not telling you this because it says in the bible what you do need to know is that you need to be loved unconditionally you need to know that you're loved unconditionally right for your own mental and emotional health it's a basic human need now some might accuse me today of watering down the gospel with what I'm going to say. But what I'm arguing, on the contrary, is that I'm actually distilling the gospel down to its most concentrated form. I'm distilling it. I'm not watering it down. Don't just take my word for it. Cole Barth. Now, the American publication, Christianity Today, once described the theologian Cole Barth as the most important theologian of the 20th century. And in 1962, he was asked by a student to summarise his life's theological work. This man would have been an old man at this stage. And he replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This man knows the Bible better than anyone else. He is more able to argue theological points than anyone else. You know, he's considered by Christianity today to be one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. Sorry, the most important theologian of the 20th century. And he summarised, distilled the gospel of Jesus down to these simple words. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Friends, I want to argue with you that when you distill the whole of our Judeo-Christian culture down to its purest form, you find the unconditional love of God for you and for me. And I want to say to you that I don't think there's anything that you and I and everyone else needs to know more than anything else other than we are unconditionally loved. That is the purest, purest description of the gospel, that you are loved unconditionally by the God who made this universe. I'm not a big fan of scotch or whiskey, but I'm told that the purest scotch tastes magical. And the purest 
essence of the gospel is that you and I are loved unconditionally by God. That's why we're here. That's why we're singing. That's why we're worshipping. That's why you're bothering to listen to me talk. Because we sense that we are loved unconditionally by God. And that is the gospel of Jesus at its purest form. The COVID pandemic has been a time of suffering. We have persevered and shown some character. Well done. You have persevered. You've shown some character to get through it. This in itself should give us hope that we, if we've got through this, we can, we can face the future. But Paul says this hope will not disappoint us. Why? Because we are loved unconditionally by God. Friends, if you are struggling with disillusionment, you're struggling with the uncertainty of the future, and you want some hope, I want to send you home with the hope in your heart that you are loved unconditionally by God. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. He loves you unconditionally. Just allow that purest sense of his love just to, just to permeate your very core of your being. May it rest in your deepest memory. May it be at the forefront of your mind. May it shape everything that you do and feel about yourself today. Let's just pause on that for a moment. Holy Spirit, I just want to ask that whatever we believe, whatever we are at, may, the, may you deposit an emotional connection with being loved unconditionally by you. There's nothing we can do to make you love us. We don't have to perform. We don't have to act up in a certain way. We don't have to believe the right doctrine. The reality is that you love us, whatever we do. Come, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit mediates that love to us. He communicates that love to us. There's no requirement to act in a certain way because God simply loves you regardless of anything you do or have done. May the profundity of that truth and even me using that word truth, in, I think is applicable in this very pure sense of God's unconditional love for you. Let that doctrine rest in your heart. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. May it give you hope. May it give you energy. May it give you momentum as you look to the future. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If you're at home or you're here in the room, I pray that God's blessing 
on you this week would work its way out with an immense awareness of God's unconditional love for you. May it be at the forefront of your mind. May it be your first thought in the morning. May it be your last thought at night. May it dwell deeply in your memory. May it come to your thoughts, the first thought and the last thought and throughout the day.